neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. It is our joy to welcome the senior pastor of Bethlehem Bible Church in West Boylton, Massachusetts. He is the host of No Compromise Radio, a ministry dedicated to the ongoing proclamation of Jesus Christ, even him crucified, his exclusive and saving gospel, and his inerrant word. Our guest is passionate about expository preaching and is the author of Jesus Christ, Prince of Preachers, Things That Go Bump in the Church, and Sexual Fidelity. Mike Abendroth, welcome to the podcast. I am so glad to be on, guys. Thank you for that. I thought to myself, uh, that's a pretty good intro. Uh, and then I realized you just copied it from the radio show. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it makes it easy when, you, when you've got the bios right there. I know. <laughs> Ken and Jeremy, I'm glad to be on. And any way I can encourage you and your watchers or listeners, I'd like to do that today. Amen. Well, hey, tell us a little bit about uh, No Compromise Radio. You've been doing that for a while. When did that start and, and how did that come together? Well, it, I think, started about 12 years ago. There was a local radio show here in New England, and it was a, a pastor talking for two hours every day about current issues. And they asked me to fill in for 10 days, and I thought, 10 days of live radio, two hours a day, what could I do? What should I do? And I kind of just started working it out hour by hour, and so I had 20 slots to fill. And I tried to think to myself, well, what would be entertaining, interesting, you know, so they don't change the dial, not too much critique, you know, anti-people, but enough to sprinkle in there. So after that was over, they said, well, we'll offer you a slot uh, to be on every day. And I said to my wife, I have no idea what to call it. I mean, what do I do? And she said, oh, that's easy. No compromise radio. Mm -hmm. Uh, therefore, she's the one that came up with it. And so it's now uh, sometimes no content radio, people have called it. <laughs> and other things. But we've been on, I think, for maybe this is going into our 12th year. Hmm. The format gives me a little bit of flexibility because Monday is a sermon that I've preached here uh, at Bethlehem Bible Church. And then Tuesday, I talked to my associate pastor, Steve Cooley, for like church issues. I try to interview people on Wednesday. Thursday, Friday, at just, you know, whatever I'm talking about. More, I think it's turned into things that I really am passionate about. In the old days, it was, what is Ann Voskamp saying? Uh, what is Beth Moore saying? Uh, what's going on with crazy, you know, Southern Baptist or something like that? And now my interest is really the Reformation uh, more than has been before, law, gospel, uh, covenant of redemption, certain things like that that uh, I talk about probably more often than I critique. Probably the worst thing you could say to me, and I, I don't really care anymore, but if somebody said, no compromise radio is a discernment radio ministry, I would think, well, I'd like people to be discerning, right? Uh, the Bereans were commended for discernment, and Paul said in First Thessalonians 5, 
to be discerning. So I think that's incumbent upon a Christian. But that's not my whole shtick. I really want to talk about who Jesus is. I see pulpits across America where essentially they're liberals functionally. That is to say, liberals, uh, Machen identified as talking about ethics and character studies and morality and kind of gutting or eviscerating the supernatural work of the Lord Jesus. So I like to talk about Jesus a lot, and uh, I hope to do that till the day I die or they kick me off the radio station. Hmm. Well, they already so, did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so was there a point, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, in the earlier days, perhaps you were more of a discernment type of ministry. Uh, did Was there a point where you kind of realized, I'm getting labeled with this crowd, and I don't really want to be associated with that type of ministry, where you made an intentional shift, or, or, or just walk me through the thought process of maturing from a discernment-type ministry to now more of a theological edification type of ministry. Sure. And, and even the name No Compromise Radio, I, I used to have that because I didn't want to compromise. I mean, what theologian or pastor wants to compromise in a world of compromise? But then I started switching it around a little bit, and so I thought, how can I rescue the name? And so I said, well, uh, who is the one who never compromised? Can you imagine out of all the people who have ever been born, billions of people, uh, the Lord Jesus said, uh, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. So I tried to rescue it by saying, we're going to talk about the one who never compromised. Secondly, at Calvary, uh, no attributes were compromised, right? God is, and uh, God is all his attributes, and he doesn't have attributes, and just you see at Calvary mercy and grace and justice, etc. So I said I like to talk about those two things. And to answer your question directly, Jeremy, I got cancer diagnosis, oh, four or five years ago or something, and that really... I'm preaching through Hebrews, and that really rocked me because I thought, you know what, if you were to say, well, I could even ask you guys, right, uh, Ken or Jeremy, if you get cancer one day, how do you think you'll respond? And you could tell me about God's sovereignty, and you can trust him, and even though he slay me, yet I'll trust in him. And I think those things are all true, and, you know, Lord willing, we, we would suffer well and, and suffer under the frowning providence of, of God. But I, I think I suffered more sinfully than I wanted to. And so it really exposed my own self-righteousness. We talked about that a little bit before the show and my pride. And I thought, if I'm struggling with these things, what about the people that I shepherd? They must be struggling as well. So everything shifted, and it shifted in the book of Hebrews objectively with my subjective uh, feelings and thoughts of cancer. And so the objective truths of Hebrews, when he talks about the just shall live by faith, and Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith, our evangelical minds most often go to faithfulness. The just shall live by faithfulness. How faithful was, you know, we'll ask the question, how could Samson and Jephthah and Abraham be in the hall of faith? Hmm. Well, they weren't very faithful, but that's, that's how we think about it. And so there's a difference between faithfulness, which obviously follows justification in terms of sanctification, but it's faith, faith alone in the Messiah and a weak faith, a tiny faith in a great savior can save. And, and therefore, when I began to go through all that and those nights at home just worrying and anxious and other things, I thought, you know what, I'm not as righteous as I think I am, and therefore I need to lean on the righteousness provided for me by the Lord Jesus in his perfect law-keeping uh, his whole life, and then, of course, his death. So that, that's kind of, I think everything changed then. I thought I don't really need to get after everybody. In the old days, I 
probably jam some of the discernment stuff into the pulpit too often on a Sunday morning. And therefore, NOCO gave me an outlet to talk about these things that really bug me. I mean, I've been off Twitter for three months now, but I'm dying to get back on to correct the universe. <laughs> and I'm sure the universe is eagerly waiting for you to return so they can, so they can know what to do. There is a disturbance in the force. No code's not on. <laughs> oh, I think I think the overall. I think the Lord is maturing me. I'm almost uh, 61, and uh, while I want to stand up for truth, and while I think, you know, there are issues with Russell Moore and you know critical race theory and all. I mean, there's just a hundred things that you could talk about. I'm more concerned these days about pastors who don't preach Christ, who scold, who don't have kind of a gospel tincture like Thomas Boston would say, who don't understand neonomism, antinomianism, third use of the law, stuff like that. That's kind of really what moves me because it really, it's really uh, evident in pulpits when people don't understand those things. And so I'd like to try to be able to help younger men now. It's so, so funny. You see, you know, Driscoll years ago, and he had some kind of tweed sweater on and a cap and all that instead of the Mickey Mouse deal. And he was trying to market himself as the as the pastor to pastors now and an older pastor to younger pastors. So I'll try not to do the Driscoll, but I think I can maybe help some younger pastors because I've made way too many mistakes so I can see them easily and, and want to help the young guys. If you don't mind sharing a little bit more about your, uh, your cancer experience there, uh, what kind of cancer was it that you had? Oh, that's none of your business. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had prostate cancer, and the crazy thing was, um, I used to sell prostate cancer equipment before I was a pastor. So mm -hmm. I know a lot about prostate cancer, biopsies, uh, prostatectomies, uh, what they have to do, and uh, what are some of the side effects. And so I, I needed to make decisions. And so if somebody said, uh, you need to make a decision. Uh, you have lung cancer and uh, you're either going to die or take your lung out. Well, we just say take the lung out. With prostate, it's a little different because it's slow growing cancer, but also it affects other things, uh, urinary issues and those kind of things. So it just made it kind of harder. So, you know, the doctors can't decide for you. So you have to decide. Mm -hmm. And then I have a wife and four children, a ministry. You know, how do you want to live? What kind of quality of life? And so I've always had kind of high numbers for prostate cancer, but was uh, blame it on being on the bicycle seat a lot, or I'd take a lot of, you know, uh, supplements and things to try to get my prostate numbers down. So it was prostate cancer. Uh, I decided uh, to do something called brachytherapy. They put a bunch of seeds in the prostate, 69 seeds to be exact in my particular case. And then it just kind of kills the prostate, but hopefully it doesn't kill anything else around it. So at the time, four years in, my numbers are good. Instead of six months, every uh, blood test, it's now every year. Uh, hopefully I'll, I mean, I don't want to die of something else, but I'll probably die of something else. Uh, and so it was just really, really good for me. I, uh, it's nothing personal. It's the man's theology. Hmm. He's probably a nice guy, but I'm not a big John Piper fan of his theology. But I did, uh, if truth be told, uh, remembered his article that he wrote, Don't Waste Your Cancer, uh, because mm -hmm. Piper also had prostate cancer. And I thought, you know what, that, that was important for me to read because I, I wanted to suffer well and, and and to the lord's glory and by his help in front of my family i was strong in front of the church i was strong 
but it was those quiet moments at midnight uh, down in my study at home where I just think, you know what? I don't think I'm thinking that well. I don't think I'm trusting like I should. Uh, and therefore, it really pushed me to what is real saving faith? And it, it made me think, okay, in the Reformation, the response to Christ's work was fiducia. It was a trust. Knowledge is in and a trust. And are you trusting? Are you walking by faith, resting, receiving, relying? Uh, back in Calvin's day, in Luther's day, the Arminians said, no, the response to saving faith is more volitional, a commitment a surrender, a treasuring, a desiring uh, submission, and therefore, how much do I have to submit to know that I'm saved? That's a lot different question than, do I have to believe in Jesus? What kind of faith must I have? And in the faith side, the fiducia side, the focus is on the object of faith. With the Arminian side of volition, it's more how much faith do I really have? That was really important for me to see that it was the object of my faith, the Lord Jesus. He didn't worry. He wasn't worried about my cancer. I could trust him. And even as a child, if I went to him and said, uh, I'm really struggling and I'm sinning too much with anxiety, a friend texted me a Thomas Goodwin quote that now is a famous from a famous book because uh, Ortland's Gentle and Lowly came from that very book by Thomas Goodwin. And essentially Goodwin said, uh, what a kind father uh, the father is. And uh, if you're a hurting child, even sinning, and you go to your hu human father, and he shows mercy and compassion and pity, uh, how much more will the Lord God show that because uh, he accepts us because he accepts us in the beloved. That was really, really important for me. And it's sprung out now in my ministry where I don't want to scold people. It was Rome that said, let's keep assurance away from people because we want them to work more. If a Christian pastor preaches to Christian people and those Christian people walk away saying, I don't think I'm a Christian, that's not good preaching. If he says, you know what, I'm going to challenge you with your uh, regarding your faith and then give us the balm of the gospel, I'm all fine for that. You can be challenged in, your, in the sermon, but it can't end with that. Uh, I, th I think I've done it for years and I watch other people do it. They preach a God who is less kind, less merciful, less forgiving than a sinful human father. And I just think that's a tragedy. So I don't want to do that. And again, my whole life is basically, I've done things the wrong way, so don't do what I do. <laughs> well, and, and, that's, uh, and that's the goal, I think, of preaching PXP, this somewhat new ministry. I think it's new of uh, NOCO Radio, um, that you're seeking to help younger people preachers develop their homiletical skills or ho however you want to phrase that. And it'd probably be best just to let you explain that and, and your desire for where you want to see that ministry go. Sure. Well, what has happened over the years, the Lord has opened up some doors where I've taught a three classes at Southern Seminary uh, for their MDiv program for homiletics. I, I don't teach there anymore, but I, I did that. I used to help out with the Master Seminary and their Doctorate of Ministry program. And uh, I teach preaching uh, uh, overseas at European Bible Training Center. And I'm just trying to help preachers. I mean, I always get emails from guys. Here's my sermon. Uh, do you think you could just kind of watch it and tell me what you think? And I, I asked them, I said, are, are, do you want me to tell you you're great? Or are you really asking me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is the question real or not? I, I know, because I, I have lived in New England for long enough that I'm fairly direct. So, um, 
So I thought, well, I could try to help other people. Here, the rub is, uh, uh, while the seminary guys pay a lot of money for those one-hour, you know, one-on-ones, I thought, well, what do I charge? And uh, the poor congregant, what are they going to do? Oh, we'd like to have our pastor be a better preacher. We'll pay $99 to Abendroth to critique the pastor, and the pastor's going to say, don't you think I'm a good preacher? <laughs> so there's not much tread uh, uh, action on that, which is fine. But what I like to do, and I've done in Canada, uh, done here in New England uh, this summer in Sacramento in July. Pastor Steve Meister is going to have me for a two-day preaching uh, conference, kind of a preacher's tune-up for elders, pastors, uh, leaders, want-to-be uh, elders and pastors, where we talk about homiletics and uh, construction of sermons. And so I probably do more of that than the PXP stuff, uh, trying to uh, watch pastors. And so essentially what we'll do is I'll teach for a while and then I'll play your sermon. So if you guys took the class, I'd already have one of your sermons and then I'd play on a big screen in front of everybody five minutes of your sermon and with a desire to help, not to, you know, not to belittle or anything. We all make the same mistakes, right? You talk about heaven and you never smile, right? I remember what Spurgeon said, men, to, in lectures to, to my students, he said, men, when you talk about heaven, make your face shine like the sun, the glories of heaven. And he said, and when you talk about hell, your everyday speaking face will do. <laughs> and so we just, you know, we're so serious when we're preaching, we just never smile, right? We never, and, and I think of the ironic blessing in number six, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you. It's, it's a face of acceptance. It's a face of, oh, blessing, uh, all because of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, I, I try to help the guys uh, when it comes to preaching, both theologically, if they don't understand law, gospel, uh, Christ-centered preaching, and also homiletically, uh, so they maybe slow down a little bit, pause more, ask more questions, and specifically smile. <laughs> awesome. You mentioned that the uh, the emphasis in the midst of this is expository preaching. Why is expository preaching itself so important? Well, Ken, that's that that's a question that I could take a thousand ways, and so I like these kind of underhanded you know, a uh, uh, slow, slow, uh, underhand, not underhanded in devious ways, but just easy questions. So expository preaching, it's a fluid term, and almost everybody has their own definition. And if you say to an evangelical, does your pastor preach expositionally? They'll almost always say yes, because at least in modern parlance, we know that's a good thing. And I always ask my kids, what's the root word of something? You know, a Unitarian church, we see uni, uh, not try, and then we talk about it. And so it's just got a root word exposed. And what we're trying to do as pastors is to let the people see what the text actually says and means. And these days, there's a lot of talk of authorial intent. But while I agree with that small a author, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, obviously, I, I agree with the human instruments as God moves them by his spirit. But I want to also talk about capital A, authorial intent. What is God trying to say? Uh, there's a book by Zach Keel out called The Unfolding Word, and it's a kind of a biblical theology book. And I thought he had something interesting to say. He said, you should read the Bible both fast and slow, or fast and slowly. And fast gives you the overview of seeing things in context and, and the redemptive flow of things, what God is doing. And then slow, kind of atomistically seeing lexical and syntactical studies, words and how those words go together. And I think expository preaching 
must also include not just a desire to show the people authorial intent. What is God saying here in this infallible, sufficient, authoritative word? Uh, but what is he also saying about who Jesus is? And while Jesus might not be in every word or verse in the Old Testament, to some degree, you have to deal with Luke 24, where the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus says, speaks of him. Uh, the other day I was thinking, um, it's Exodus 29, I believe. And on Sunday morning, we have a New Testament reading and an Old Testament reading. And the Old Testament reading, we're going through, we started in Genesis, and now we're in Exodus 32. And whatever that is, Exodus 29, we read it. Exodus 30, we read it. And we're walking through it. And Exodus 29 talked about the garments of the priests back in the Old Covenant and how they had to take time to make them and how clean they were and how pure they were and you needed to have this right vestment on and then god says through moses and then take the blood of the sacrifice and throw it onto the people's garment the, the, the priest garments like can you just see it in your mind you're like throwing this sprinkled blood and then pretty soon you fast forward to first peter chapter one and he says we're sprinkled with his blood and you think, you know, the, uh, we're, we're not holy, but we have been declared holy because of the work of Christ Jesus and his sacrifice for our unholiness. So expository preaching to me, it's more than preaching verse by verse, although that's a fine way to functionally do it. I think the heart of expository preaching must contain a discussion about authorial intent. What is God trying to say in this passage uh, to the people that are sitting there in front of you? Amen. So you're, you're in Massachusetts right now, and how long have you been there? Uh, 24 years, 24 which years. people say is like the longest five decades of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I would not fit in anywhere else because I'm ornery enough and straightforward enough that this is perfect for me. And uh, I thought if I ever go to Georgia or California or whatever, I'd probably get kicked out right away. So this is the first pastorate that I've ever had. Got here in 97. And I just finished my 24th year. Actually, I think this Sunday we go into my 25th year. Most likely I'll die here. I mean, well, maybe not in the church building, but uh, in central Massachusetts, uh, 61. I, I think my mind is good still, so I don't have any plans to retire, try to stay in shape and work out and all that. So uh, it, it's been really neat to see what the Lord can do. I think it was in 99 that I picked up MacArthur from the airport and he was going to come here and speak. And I was bemoaning the fact that this is such a hard place to be uh, in terms of ministry. And it's called the preacher's graveyard and Chuck Smendall lasted two years, you know, things like that. And uh, he said, well, I, I, do you think Mike, that the word of God is powerful enough to save people in new England? <laughs> Mm, well, uh, yeah, probably. And that's kind of stuck in my mind. And therefore, the good news about New England is there are no really, uh, you know, big mega churches here. And, you know, a lot of people who want to come in and be New England missionaries, but it just takes the long haul. And therefore, you know, as my wife might quote Elizabeth Elliot, you know, you bloom where you're planted and faithful, not fabulous. And just the proclamation of the truth year after year after year. To just give you an illustration, the church was originally uh, egalitarian, evidential, Arminian, seeker-sensitive, psychological sanctification. Uh, I mean, I, I, those are the ones that just come off my mind, uh, uh, you know, a uh, continuationist. And now the church 24 years year later is presuppositional, Calvinistic, 
uh, Christ-centered, uh, not church growth, uh, not psychological sanctification, all these things. And, pe- you know, how did I do it? I didn't do anything. I just kept preaching week by week by week. And it's such a, an amazing thing. I can't quantify it or find a scripture verse, guys. But how the word proclaimed by a fallible man on a Sunday morning on the Lord's day, right? Think the reformers, uh, means of grace, preaching of the word of God, the Holy Spirit, especially attending to that preaching. And it changes people. That's why I can't convince people on Facebook, on social media. People want to argue. Uh, I had a young man here and he said, I don't believe in unconditional election, but can I still attend the church? I said, of course you can. And uh, about seven years later, I said to him just in passing, hey, John, do you you still struggle with election? No. I said, how long did it take you to go over it? Oh, he said four or five years. But he said, now I see it everywhere. And uh, it's just, it changes people. And that's why I'm so concerned about people who say, well, my church doesn't meet because of COVID for the next year. And then they just do Bible studies at home. I'm happy for Bible studies at home, but not in lieu of or to replace the public proclamation of God's word. And, and I don't want people staying home. Uh, I just sent out an email today. Somebody at our church, my wife saw at Walmart, but they don't attend the church. And so I just said, hey, so-and-so, haven't seen you around. Hope you're well. Uh, do you have any plans on returning back to church? My wife saw you at Walmart, so you surely don't have a problem with being out in public anymore, right? And then I just sent it. <laughs> uh, obviously, there are people that are really sick. We have some dear ladies at our church who are 90 and, and they don't want to come out. Okay, fine. But if you're able to be sitting under the word of God, you, sh- you should be. And therefore, it changes people. Just verse by verse by verse, preaching through Jonah, preaching through Matthew. I'm in Second Peter now, and I looked up on Sunday and saw this guy that I knew was going to be at the church and who was going through a hard time. He was an unbeliever, and I thought, well, the message he needs to hear today is Second Peter 2, 1 to 3, about watch out for false teachers. And... Uh, God will use that in any way he sees fit, because I will talk about the true teacher, the Lord Jesus, in the sermon. And therefore, it's just been, it's been great to watch. It's the long haul. Obviously, you might skip from church to church here or there, but there is something to be said for 24 years in the same place, just watching people grow and learn, sending out preachers. Uh, and now I've been able to watch people be born, uh, saved, baptized in my preaching class, and I've officiated their wedding. And so that's really been neat. Praise God. So you're uh, there in Massachusetts, but uh, you're originally from Nebraska, right? You're a Cornhusker. There is no place like Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you could say that about any place. Born and raised in Omaha, moved in 82 to Los Angeles because as an unbeliever, I wanted to be by the beach and by the punk rock scene and by Las Vegas. So moved there in 82, not knowing that about uh, seven years later, through my father's death and beginning to listening to sermons on the radio in Los Angeles, uh, the Lord would uh, use that preaching. Met this girl in my neighborhood who's now my wife. She began to preach to me. So I moved there for all the wrong reasons, uh, but got saved in California. I remember one time, guys, I was listening to the radio, and I think it was Calvary Chapel, and he said, you know, it was a sermon that was recorded, and he said, well, come to the front, you know, and if, if the Lord's tugging on your heart, uh, come to the front and, you know, receive Christ and all that. And I knew I was sinful, and even though I had a Lutheran background, I'm like, I, I need to be born again. This is, I don't like who I am. I'm sinful. This is not working, et cetera. So I remember trying to get close up to the dash. 
right? Because you need to move up to the front of the church. So I'm like driving my car on the 405 in Los Angeles, trying to get up to the defroster <laughs> to accept the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny. Yeah. And so at, at heart, you're a Midwesterner like us. Ken's a Chicago boy and I'm from central Missouri. Uh, I'm, I'm displaced like you now. And so, um, but you've, you've ended up in Worcester, right? Did I pronounce that right? Good enough. At least you didn't say the R. Yeah, well, I, I'm trying. Yeah. You know, I, I did I did a little bit of research. Good. Uh, Wor- yeah. Worcester. There you go. That's w- it. Perfect. Okay. And uh, you said you, you fit in well there now. You feel like you couldn't live anywhere else. So um, you, you've adapted, but you're not exactly there running a, a mega church or anything. Like you said, you don't, you don't really get those in New England. I, I'm in Utah. We don't have them here either. And um, I'm just wondering if this is what you thought ministry would be like when you went out there before the, the turn of the millennium. Mm. I like the question, and this may sound odd. It sounds odd to me these days, even as I say it. But I was so thrilled that God would save me and then God would use me, and that if you could have asked me what would be the thrill of my life, I would have said to be a pastor, 50, 80 people, it doesn't really matter the size, smaller. If I could do this for full-time work and uh, somebody pay my bills so I could be a full-time pastor, I didn't really care where it was. I I thought New England was kind of neat because, you know, there's a lot of history here, both American history uh, pre-American history, uh, theological history, et cetera, from Edwards to Mather to, you know, Whitfield and all those guys. And I thought if I could be a pastor, that'd just be a dream come true. So I came to New England in 97 and the church, I don't know, was hundred people, 90 people, something like that. And it never dawned on me and the internet wasn't that big at the moment, but it never dawned on me to try to want to be somebody. Uh, to be famous, to be an international speaker, to teach at colleges, to go overseas. I always knew these guys that would go on missions trips everywhere as pastors. You know, I, I think it was 15 years before anybody ever asked me to do anything, with one exception. Down the street, there was a church meeting at a U-Haul uh, storage center, and they had uh, like a Promise Keepers men's group, and they asked me to come and teach. I think that's the only time I ever got asked to teach, maybe in 10 years. And therefore, I didn't have any any aspirations of, hey, I got to be a big shot and I want to get my name out and a footprint and shows and books and all that. And life was better then. It was easier then. And uh, I don't I can't say that I had all the pure motives to be a speaker and everything else and write books. And I guess I got into it because day one, the publisher said, if you write a book on preaching, because we have none, if you write a book. Uh, we'll give it out to the Shepherds Conference guys. And uh, that's kind of what propelled me into, you know, the Z-list celebrityism of, of evangelicalism. Uh, and so I said, I'll, I'll do it. And I said, what's my time frame? And they said, six weeks. So when you read that book, you'll go, hmm, that's like a six weeks or um, I'd like to redo it, but it is what it is. Therefore, I think anonymity is better. I, I watch guys. Uh, if you compare like a James Boyce in Philadelphia, 30 years of faithful ministry, I don't think he tried to be famous. The Lord just gave him a prominent platform in evangelicalism, R.C. Sproul, those kind of guys. But then I watched the Mark Driscolls of the world, and I think they tried to get it, yet I think they're too young. So if you're not old and seasoned and you have this huge you know, platform, it, it plays with you. I mean, I, I can attest to the fact that 
you know, when you're on an airplane or you're speaking and, you know, people say hello or can you sign my book or whatever, it, it just messes with your mind. So anonymity is better. And, uh, you know, if, if the Lord somehow throws you into the limelight because of something, okay, fine. But I don't think it's something that people should go for. And then to answer your question directly, uh, 24 years later, I don't know really what I thought I would be doing in 24 years except preaching through the next book of the Bible, right? It's Second Peter, and I'm preaching. Uh, I, I am thrilled. I get to go places and teach other people now and have some influence. But uh, five years ago, maybe I was looking for it. 24 years ago, I, I didn't have any idea um, what I would be allowed to do, and I, I'm grateful that I could do that. But if it all evaporates today, I'll probably be better off for it. <laughs> So you're, you've been there for 24 years, and you're a graduate of Master Seminary, as you mentioned. Uh, your brother, Pat, also a graduate from Master Seminary. He's a pastor out in Omaha Bible Church in Nebraska. Uh, but it sounds like both of you have kind of evolved theologically over the years as you've taught through God's Word at different levels. Can you just walk us through a little bit of some of your theological evolution, some of the things that have changed in your approach, and uh, maybe just some of the key things that led to those, uh, those changes? Sure. Well, Pat is my younger brother, nine years younger, like you said, at Omaha Bible Church. And maybe for our theological evolution, it might be deemed by some as a theological de-evolution. <laughs> are we not men? We are devo. Uh, it just depends on what side you're on. Uh, I think probably 10 years ago, I was putting together a sermon, and the sermon was basically, you know, what have I changed since seminary, theologically or methodologically? And I don't really think it was that much uh, that I had changed. And then the more I studied, the more I went through issues, the whole faith, faithfulness paradigm, law, gospel, piety, pietism, uh, what motivates a Christian to obey, a lot of those things, Christ-centered preaching, that kind of sped me up a little bit. I tell students all the time that they can't teach you everything in seminary. And so whatever seminary you go to, you're going to need to study on your own. And so after you, you finish seminary, why don't you ask yourself what I ask myself? Where are my weaknesses theologically? And I said, my, th my theological weaknesses are biblical theology. Okay, well, then I'll just read five or 10 books on biblical theology because I need to be up to snuff on that and not just be a systematizing you know, theologian. So I started doing that, and of course, if you're going to read Voss and others, you have to deal with issues of continuity, uh, discontinuity. You have to deal with issues of one people of God or two people. Is the parentheses uh, the church or Israel? Uh, when did the church start? Uh, there's a lot of things that you have to work through. And I think for me, creeds and confessions and the great tradition of the church helped me a lot. Maybe I could put it this way, guys. Uh, no tradition is what I would call uh, tradition zero. And I think I'm using uh, Herman, uh, what's his last name? Bevink? Uh, uh, well, no, not that one, but... Uh, uh, the other, the other, my other brother, Herman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, starts with an O. He's a German guy. He does Luther work. Uh, Ober something. Anyway, Obermann, oh. Heiber, uh, Heiko Obermann, excuse me. Uh -huh. Yeah, and he would say tradition zero is it's me in the Bible. Right? There's no other books. It's just me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And of course, if you want to sit down and read your Bible, the Spirit of God illumines it. But that's, that's solo scriptura, Bible, uh, uh, Bible uh, only. 
uh, in terms of no tradition, nothing, nothing in, in the past. Then there's tradition one, which would say, uh, well, the Bible is our infallible source and authority and all that. And in addition, how has the church uh, interpreted it? And if they got sola fide right, well, and if they got Nicaea right, and if they got, you know, Arianism uh, was wrong uh, and they got that right, uh, what can we learn from them? And tradition two says, well, there's purgatory, prayers for the dead, uh, Mariolatry. We have to uh, abandon that. And therefore, I, maybe I could put it this way. The old way I would study would be read through 10 commentaries. There are two versions of a possible interpretation. Which one do I go to? Well, I know this celebrity pastor, he has a celebrity commentary, he's a celebrity, this or that, I'll go with him. And I don't study that way anymore. Now I say, this issue of sanctification, neonomism, antinomianism, is it synergistic sanctification, monergistic sanctification? How do we work through that? This has already been done. It doesn't, it doesn't mean there might, not be, there might be an error in the Reformation. Obviously there could be, but the Reformation dealt with that justification, sanctification of good works. What do we say about God the sanctifier and how we're renewed and how we're uh, cleansed and how he vivification and mortification, all that stuff. So that's really, really helped me in my theological, I can't say journey because that would be broken and wounded journey. I just like to have a church named Journey Church. But anyway, that's another story. I <laughs> hope would Steve Perry attend. <laughs> I, know, I, know. I walked out on Journey with Steve Perry singing because Van Halen opened for them in the late oh, 70s with in Omaha. Sammy or with uh, David Lee Roth? David Lee Roth. And I thought okay. they just killed it. And then yeah. all of a sudden... Well, yeah, it's Van Halen. I know. And then then this Journey group comes out and I thought, no way. This is not that's what girl music, do. man. I, I, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well... So I think creeds and confessions helped. What has church history taught us? And you see that now with maybe Matthew Barrett and uh, uh, Craig Carter and others who are saying, you know, we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Let's go back and see what the folks have taught us. Uh, Aquinas isn't perfect, but did he get the doctrine of God right? Or whatever, things like that. So that has really been helpful to me in my theological hopefully maturation maybe instead of evolution. But I think it's more, I think I'm not a dispensationalist anymore. I think it's uh, more of a reform view of looking at things. If I tried to, I was putting together a sermon the other day for kind of fun or no-co. I thought, okay, one triune God, two categories, law, gospel, three covenants, redemption, grace, works, four gospels, uh, then I could like spin that into gospel-centered preaching. Five solas and six forms of unity. <laughs> Westminster shorter, longer. Westminster's confession of faith. And then uh, seven dispensations. Oh, yeah. you're right oh, there. Yeah. Good job, Ken. <laughs> that a boy. Hey, I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, you know, Ken and I are, are of the more dispensational persuasion. I identify more with. Uh, progressive uh, Daryl Bach, Craig Blazing type. Um, I've listened to NOCO radio for a while now, and there are obviously things that I would disagree with you on, but I can't stop listening for whatever that's worth. I've tried to stop, and I can't. Uh, <laughs> it's like a drug. and uh, uh, But I've heard you mention here and there on the program uh, – 
I'm not on this person's program anymore. He doesn't have me back or, or this or that or the other. And I'm wondering in your theological uh, de-evolution, as you rightly called it, uh, have <laughs> how many of those relationships have been burned? Uh, has that been a real thing or is that more of a tongue-in-cheek type of thing? Or have you gone from a tight-knit community to being left out on an island theologically uh, with these guys that you used to have great fellowship with? Good question. Uh, I don't really think so, and I'll explain what I mean uh, hopefully now. Uh, I pretty much study, you know, Reformation, Presbyterian, you know, that those are the kind of people I studied. Most of the new books that come out, I try not to, I guess I've got a few new ones. I'm reading Simply Trinity now by Barrett. I'm reading mm-hmm. the new Crawford Gribben book about Doug Wilson and the Pacific Northwest and Reconstruction and so I'm trying to read newer books as well, but my, my life is like a Presbyterian study, but most of my friends are kind of the, from the TMS, uh, Talbot, uh, Dallas Seminary world. Like if I go get asked to speak someplace, it's usually from, you know, it's some kind of leaky dispensationalist, progressive dispensationalist. Well, well I've, I've kind of noticed from the master's group specifically, there's like a marine type brotherhood that those graduates have together. Uh, they really stick together and really favor each other over and against other groups. And so maybe specifically with that group, have you, has it been like you left the Marines and now you're, you're in the Navy and there's like, I mean, is there any kind of weird vibe like that? Maybe, uh, I'm not asked to teach at TMS anymore at the D men level. And I don't really think it's because of my reform views. I mean, they have Carl Truman come in and other people like that. Although maybe there's something to do with that because you know, if I was a Presbyterian going in and, you know, Ralph Davis or something like that, then they probably wouldn't, you know, budge, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't flinch rather. But since I kind of am homegrown and then I don't believe certain things that they do, maybe I'm seeing more of a, you know, I've abandoned uh, the particular, you know, insights of masters. I, I was asked to do the New England Shepherds Fellowship, which is from Master Seminary Grace Community Church, uh, to be the leader. Uh, and so I, I did that because, you know, I, I've learned a lot at Master Seminary and I have a lot of dear connections. And really, I'm here to encourage pastors in New yeah. England. So I told them while I'm not pre trib, I'm not going to get up and do anti pre trib messages. I'm here to encourage pastors. That's the last thing we talk about. Right. If you look at Belgic Confession and Savoy and wh- whichever denomination, their end times eschatology section of Last Judgment is simply the personal eschatology of Jesus. He, he literally was raised. He'll literally come back. And then personal eschatology of individuals. We, we will die. We'll get a new body. There'll be either be judgment or acceptance because of Christ's work. And therefore, why, why divide here in New England when there's hardly anybody to minister to? I, so I, I, I speak to a lot of TMS groups. Uh, I don't think I burned every bridge. Uh, I don't. I don't. I just. I don't really criticize them very much because I just. The, the Lord has used them. I, I emailed my old Calvary Chapel pastor a while ago, and said, "I just want to thank you for your desire uh, to preach verse by verse." Uh, the Bible's inerrant. I learned that from you. Jesus is the only way. Uh, all the Bible is good for us. There are false teachers to avoid. And I just said, I want to, I just want to say thank you. And then I thought, well, the same things when I learned from John MacArthur that preaching is preeminent. We're not going to back down from the word of God. Uh, every 
verse is inspired and, and errant, et cetera. I learned a lot. I mean, I have nuances now in eschatology. Uh, my view of sanctification is probably different. My view of uh, one people of God, uh, there's a lot of those things, but I, I just try not to blast uh, away a, a on the radio or something like that. So mm. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's all very subjective and political uh, in when, it, when we're talking about people and how they get along in ministry. Um, but it's just something I picked up on listening to your program, that there would just be things here and there where you've talked about how your views have changed and not being on Wretched Radio anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what happened with Wretched? I, I could do that in my study that's over there. There is the radio section of the study, and I was supposed to be on live, and somehow I couldn't get the connection, and there was firewall and all that. And so then Todd uh, additionally moved to other syndicated stations, and he did, wasn't on for two hours and all the kind of no-co stuff is now through Phil on Too Wretched for Radio. And so yeah. I think probably, and Todd and I text each other once in a while, I think I, he probably was afraid I might say something and make uh, somebody on syndicated radio mad or bugged. I really, I don't know politics that well. And that's probably why even at Master Seminary, oh, the other thing with like Southern Seminary, I went to Southern to get my D-men. And I uh, was so thankful for so many things that I learned there. And then they started going woke and CRT and Al Mohler says he's not, but he employs people that are. And I just didn't want to talk about it for a long time. And then after a while, I just thought, I just can't take it anymore. And so mm. I'm not going to be asked to teach anymore because I'm critical of, of Danny Aiken or Al Mohler. And I just don't get those invites anymore. And it's okay because this whole desire, I've got to be on Gospel Coalition. I've got to get to the top. I've got to expand. I just think, you know what? It's just a waste of time. So if the mm -hmm. Lord expands your ministry, great. Pray the prayer of Jabez more and you'll be fine for a day. Oh, I'll stop it. <laughs> um, so we, we have, we're short on time. Um, let's, let's hit you with a few things quick here. Um, I wanted to bring up the uh, work that you edited and compiled S. Lewis Johnson's notes on Romans. Um, I don't have the book yet. I am very intrigued, though. I saw that the book was endorsed by Sam Storms, Sinclair Ferguson, and John MacArthur. And if you get those three guys to endorse the same thing, it's like, whoa. So t tell us just a little bit about S. Lewis Johnson, particularly the book Discovering Romans that you had a major hand in. Sure. Uh, S. Lewis, I started listening to years ago because on cassette, because MacArthur said, that's the guy I listen to. And I go, okay, well, that's all I need to know. So I began to listen to this Southern gentleman who's kind of like a modern day, uh, the only equivalent I can think of today is D.A. Carson, because Carson could write a commentary, but he could also be, a, you know, an excellent preacher. You know, lots of times scholars aren't good homileticians and vice versa. But, but basically, S. Lewis Johnson had it all. And he taught for da at Dallas Seminary for years. Then because of regeneration preceding faith, which Dallas denies, and they still do to this day in their statement of faith, and the mm -hmm. atonement issue, he and Walvert had it out. And so then Johnson left, and I thought, well, I like men of convictions, et cetera. And uh, I began listening to his Romans commentary on uh, his Romans exposition on my bicycle. And I thought, everybody in our church needs this. They should just hear this truth of Romans 5. It was D.A. Carson that said of Johnson's uh, article on Romans 5.12 on federal headship, there's not a better theological article ever written. And I thought, I've got to read that in federal headship. And that's the other way, that's the other thing besides Hebrews and cancer that propelled me into Reformed theology. 
Um, S. Lewis Johnson has a 33-part series on dispensationalism and covenant theology, and just trying to say, what do they each really teach? So we don't care. And where did that great mind fall on that divide? Well, toward the end of his life, he moved from... Um, well, it was a trajectory. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, he, he, he died as a historic premillennialist is where he ended. Uh, I have uh, I know some people in pre-trib circles, and they said, oh, he was reverting back when he died. Uh, and I heard also other people tell me that he would have eventually gone into amillennialism. Uh, I did talk to Sinclair Ferguson, and the last time he ever taught, Oh, no, sorry, excuse me. The last sermon he ever heard was like a Wednesday night Sinclair Ferguson sermon at a Presbyterian church in Dallas. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. But anyway, uh, I loved his stuff. So it is a long story. Succinctly put, I was in this very building and I called the church where Sinclair, uh, S. Lewis Johnson used to pastor and said, I'd love to put together some of his stuff, put a book out. He only had one book published in 1980 by Zondervan on Old Testament, New Testament issues. They said, hey, get in line. Everybody does that. Fast forward. Uh, I got a hold of the daughter. She ran the estate, Grace Johnson Monroe. And she said, can I ask you some questions? I said, you can ask me anything you want. God's sovereign. I just want to put your dad's stuff out there. Hmm. And she said, question number one. This is from the daughter. Do you believe in limited atonement? <laughs> and I told her why I did. And she said, good, because my daddy got fired from Dallas Seminary and nobody's going to touch him stuff, touch his stuff if they believe in unlimited atonement. <laughs> so with trusts and feisty lady, I know trusts and uh, lawyers and everything else. I took the first three chapters of Romans that he had put in the bib sack uh, theological journal mm -hmm. with all kinds of Greek words and stuff. And so I used that, then took his expositions for the remaining uh, 13 chapters of Romans, had about 180,000 words. Uh, Zondervan said they'd do it for 90,000 words, had to truncate a lot. Uh, there are some great parts about it. There are some parts that aren't as good, uh, but Romans 1, 2, and 3, 5, 8 are excellent. 6 and 7 need some work, but I only had so much time. But he really, mm. it's really encouraging to listen to S. Lewis Johnson. And I like it that he would say, you know what, if you're pre-mill, you need to read the best book on amillennialism because you, you just need to deal with these issues. And I didn't really get that when I was in seminary. So even now, when I teach a homiletics class to a bunch of dispensationalists who might not like redemptive historical preaching from Dennis Johnson's homiletics book, Him We Proclaim, I make them read it for two reasons. One, they need to deal with it. And two, I agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> Professor's prerogative, right? <clears throat> That's right. And I assigned my own book, too, because I probably, you know, make 20 cents a copy on it or something. Well, there are there's a lot of theological issues that the American church is dealing with today. And I'm just curious, what are some of the two top two or three that are in the forefront of your mind right now that seem particularly important? I used to say, Ken, I used to say uh, mysticism. Right, because there's this whole category of Christians. If I meet somebody and they say, I'm a Christian, I'm an evangelical, I pretty much would think, oh, yeah, they believe in some kind of continuationism, some type of mysticism. B.B. Warfield used to say there are two religions when it comes to revelation, uh, a religion that says, well, there might be some external revelation, but also internal. And then there's the message of Christianity that comes strictly from the outside. 
extra nos. That is, it bypasses uh, who we are, and the and, and the fall has affected people. So therefore, any revelation that's internally driven, Quaker, uh, inner light, God told me, you can't trust it. I mean, Proverbs says, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. And therefore, I used to think, you know, a lot of mysticism uh, is the problem. And I do think it's still a problem today. But I think the bigger problem is going back to Machen's 1923 book, Christianity and Liberalism, published by Erdman's, that's free online that everybody here should um, read. I, I have a little segment in NOCO that I, I kind of stopped doing, but I should re redo it. And it's called What's in My Sock Drawer. And uh, I have so many books. My wife always tells me when I go out of town, please don't bring any more books home. And if you go to another country, don't bring a false idol home. Because I always bring these little idols home, and they're in our living room, and I, I, and I have them all set up. And she always lays them down, uh, like, you know, like Dagon the fish god. You know, he's in there with the Ark of the Covenant, and then before you know it, he's on his face, and then he doesn't have his head. And so I have to jam books everywhere, not to hide them from my wife, but they just they go everywhere. So my most precious books are the ones that the Lord has used in my life the most. I, I, I don't know why, but I put them in my sock drawer in case there's a fire or something. <laughs> grab my guns in, the, in, in my Bible, in the sock drawer books. And so that book there, uh, Machen, Christian Liberalism, is in my sock drawer. And therefore, what I see these days with this, whether it's social gospel or some kind of sanctification issue, homiletics, a lot of it has to do with not understanding what Machen called the triumphant indicative of the gospel. Uh, the, the, the gospel is not love God, love your neighbor. Uh, people say, oh, our church is all about loving God and loving neighbor. And I just automatically default to law. That's not what our church is all about. That's a good response uh, to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. But that's not what our church is all about. Our church is all about Colossians 1, 28, 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, it's about who the Lord Jesus is. And if I tell people, if you like Jesus, you'll like this church. If you want a bunch of rules, extra law, hey, we just want more practical application. Translation, we want more law. Uh, I'm going to give you law, but it's going to be couched in the personal work of Jesus. Because I, I think to answer your question, sanctification is like the issue in my mind these days. Mm -hmm. So here's sanctification for the, for the Roman Catholic. Law. For justification, it's law because gospel and law is combined. And in sanctification, it's just more law. Do these things. Wesleyanism is essentially law to the unbeliever to show their sins, gospel to the unbeliever to show them the riches of Christ, his atoning work and resurrection. Then now for sanctification for the Wesleyans, it's give them more law. That's evangelicalism. That's seeker sensitive. That's promise keepers. That's everything uh, pretty much indigenous to, to Christianity. It's a Wesleyan form of sanctification. But I think Paul, Luther, Calvin, Beza, the reformers, law to the unbeliever, gospel to the unbeliever. Now, how is a person sanctified? Well, the Holy Spirit, he is the sanctifier. But we give people the law, which is not going to condemn them anymore, because while it's holy and an immutable law, it comes from not the judge, it comes from the Father, right? And the Father says, this is the way you should live. His, his laws don't change, but our relationship to the lawgiver does. And now the Father says, this is the law to guide you. This is the law to help you. This is the law that would uh, bring you the most good and me the most glory. And I would like you to follow that. But what's the animating force behind the law? The law doesn't 
animate. The law is like GPS. It just says, good job, turn around, right? It, it, it doesn't get you there. You need an engine in your car to get you to where you're going to go. And the engine, our motivation for the Christian life has to be the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, I think when we're in sanctification categories, the big problem in evangelicalism is they're just giving people more law and the burden of more law with any, without, without any relief of here's the person and work of Jesus. And the reason why they do it, either A, they're ignorant, but B, they're afraid that their congregations are going to go crazy. And therefore, they're putting this extra law on. And you see it with all kinds of people in evangelicalism. And I think they're afraid. I ask guys all the time, could you say to your congregation, dear Christians, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, for an unbeliever, that's not true. And for Bill Bright and Campus Crusade, that was a bad law for spiritual laws. I, I, I'm not condoning that. But think about what we do in sanctification. I could use the, the Lord's Supper as an illustration. If you don't think law, gospel, law, gospel, then your Lord's Supper is going to be this. Funeral, heads down, did you sin a lot this week? Uh, do you have a bunch of sin issues still in your life this week? Uh, do this in remembrance of your sin. I'm not saying there's not a law in 1 Corinthians 11, but that's not what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. This is the gracious God of the universe. You know, now you guys, do you use those little plastic things on the top? They've got the little wafer combined. Well, where we're using those in New England. Mm -hmm. And I just said, these are like, this is cheesy, right? This is dumb. But I said, what if Jesus said, please come over to my house for dinner? Theoretically, if he asked you to come over and you went over and you're like, oh, I said a few things about Jesus this week that didn't, you know, weren't honoring to him. So at the door, you say, could you please forgive me? And he'd say, of course, come in. And then he gathered you around the table and he said, I've got a special thing to remind you that I'm going to come back one day and you're my child and uh, I'm your older brother. I'm the alpha, the omega. I've done everything for you. I could not love you more or less. And here's a little token. Here's this little plastic thing to give you. I said, you would frame it. You, you would put it in a frame. You're like, Jesus gave me this. This is a reminder that I'm good with God. He's not angry with me. Uh, the God of the universe has done it all. He, his work is outside of me and he accepts me through faith and through faith alone. And so when I watch, I watch sanctification problems, it, you just take a look at the Lord's Supper. Is it all law? Is it funeral? Or after some law, examine yourself, right? Confess. Is there not joy and happiness the king of the universe said, I'd like to dine with you, and it's a foretaste of glory. And even though you've sinned this week, the only unworthy way to approach me is the thinking that you're worthy, because all the worth comes from uh, the work yeah. of my son. So come, enjoy, eat. So I think the biggest problem in evangelical circles these days is a wrong view of law gospel sanctification. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much. Pastor Mike, for sharing your thoughts with us today and giving your time. I know it's been helpful for the listener, and I really do uh, like listening to you, love listening to your program. Uh, everybody needs to check out NoCo Radio, uh, subscribe to the podcast. And just earlier today, Ken subscribed to the Bethlehem Bible Church preaching podcast there. Yeah. So, hey, wow. Uh, well, you know what? Look at us just <laughs> endorsing you. Whatever that's worth. <laughs> well, it is amazing, and I mean this in, in all sincerity what the Lord can do through people. And, you know, we're just fa fallible um, mouthpieces. Uh, I said to the folks um, 
this last week, we're talking about false teachers and how it says the false teachers are among us, among you, they said. And I was studying, uh, showing the people, you know what, just because the pastor says something doesn't make it true. I mean, I think you should trust me to some degree, of course, based Mm. on track record, but we need to be very, very careful on who we listen to and why. And so I found a quote, I'm trying to scroll through now and find it from J.C. Ryle that I want to leave with your listeners that is so wonderful. Uh, Maybe you guys do this when you preach. There's something in your sermon that you can't wait to say. You're like, oh, I can't wait Mm -hmm. to get to that part. I've got one of those from Luther this for this Sunday. Okay, good. Do you know what it is? While I'm looking for yeah. this, yeah, let me go ahead and pull that up uh, for our Resurrection Day message. You know, this will this episode, of course, will play after Resurrection Day. But uh, when Martin Luther said, "Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness; I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours." Unbelievable! Perfect. So good. Uh, here's what Ryle said: Your minister may be a man of God indeed, and worthy of all honor for his preaching and practice but do not make a pope of him. Do not mm. place his word side by side with the word of God. Do not spoil him by flattery. Do not let him suppose he can make no mistakes. Do not lean your whole weight on his opinion, or you may find to your cost that he can err. Be not content with saying, I have hope because my own minister has told me such and such. Seek instead to be able to say, I have hope because I find it thus and thus written in the word of God. The visible church may be broken up, but he who has the word of God written in his heart, he has a foundation beneath his feet, which will never fail him. Honor your minister as a faithful ambassador. Esteem him highly in love for his work's sake, but never forget that infallibility is not to be found in godly ministers, but in the Bible. Amen. So when you, I think that's a, a fitting word. So when you listen to NoCo Radio, our Bethlehem Bible Church podcast, you remember that. <laughs> As a Very dispensationalist, I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have some friends, and they're like, "Well, we're we're Reformed dispensationalists," and I said, "Well, to me, the 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 the, the noun there uh, that takes a higher priority than." the adjective or the modifier. And so do you really want to say out of all the words in the Bible or in theological circles that define me, it's dispensationalist? I said, I guess you can, and maybe it's true, but uh, if we're talking eschatology, fine. Uh, If not, then I I want to try to move somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll we'll have to have that conversation on another day. (laughs) Well, I appreciate being on. It's always an encouragement to talk about the Lord Jesus and to see what the next generation of young men are doing. So I commend both you, uh, Ken, and you, Jeremy, for uh, preaching the word, teaching the word, and wanting to make sure we get uh, the, the, the word out to people that Jesus Christ is a great sa- <clears throat> excuse me, is a great savior of great sinners. So I, I praise him for that and for you guys. Amen.